This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, the coronavirus and Chinese communism, how protesters are challenging the party and the government, Jeff Wasserstrom will report. Also, Sunday is the Super Bowl, a festival of toxic masculinity that has some things in common with Donald Trump. Legendary sports writer Robert Lipsight will explain. But first, the Senate impeachment trial head towards a vote. Trump Watch starts right now. Well, of course, the trial of Donald Trump for abusive power and obstruction of Congress continues. For comment and analysis, we turn once again to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the L.A. Times op-ed page. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, at this hour, the question period in the Senate continues. Tomorrow, they will vote on whether to call witnesses. Uh, One of the highlights yesterday uh, came when the president's attorney, Alan Dershowitz, the Republicans call him Professor Dershowitz, made a new argument for acquitting Trump on charges of abuse of power. He said, quote, if a president does something which he believes will help him get elected in the public interest, that cannot be the kind of quid pro quo that results in impeachment, close quote. Uh, If you're campaigning for president, that can't possibly be wrong. Uh, That was Dershowitz's argument. Do you agree? (laughs) Actually, uh, obviously, I don't agree. Uh, apparently, there are a lot of folks, including a, a number of his conservative legal colleagues, who were appalled uh, by that <laughs> argument. I mean, he, he, what he was saying was, you know, that if, if the president believes his, or theoretically her, uh, re-election is in the national interest, then uh, he can uh, go ahead and and do whatever it takes to foster his reelection, uh, and it's not impeachable. By which standards, uh, the Watergate break-in would have been fine because Nixon uh, believed his reelection was uh, in the national interest. Uh, if Trump uh, shot whoever the Democratic nominee turns out to be on Fifth Avenue, to use the well-known Donald Trump, uh, you know, statement. Um, because he believed his re-election was in the national interest, uh, that would not be impeachable. Uh, it, you know, it was it was a completely bizarre claim. Uh, wondering if uh, uh, Dershowitz was uh, deranged or losing his mind or whatever, but it was it was it was certainly striking. And he's had to somewhat backtrack today, though the words are the words, and he did say them. And I notice he's not up there today answering questions. They're leaving that to uh, to other other people. Yeah, no, he's down, he's down in Florida, and I I think if needs be, the Republicans will come up with a lot of money to keep him in Florida, <laughs> uh, so long as the trial is uh, ongoing. Anyway, well, I want to just take a step back and look at the big picture of what's happened over the last week or two. Some of our friends are arguing that the Senate trial has been an unqualified success for the Democrats in political terms. Mark Cooper, for example, argued recently that the Democrats have succeeded in taking 
the daily narrative out of Trump's hands and made it all about impeachment and the missing witnesses rather than let him dominate every news cycle with his distractions, lies, uh, tweets, and old-fashioned BS, people see the defense case getting more and more ridiculous. Um, And this can only weaken Trump now and for the weeks and months to come. I wonder if you agree. Well, yes and no. Um, I mean, in so far as what Mark uh, wrote, that's absolutely right. Uh, except that Trump's polling uh, remains uh, basically the same, or even a point or two higher than it's been. Uh, which is to say, nothing is going to dislodge the Trump base. So he's no weaker there. Are there swing voters? Maybe in the suburbs of Philadelphia or places like that. Uh, who'd be on the fence, and this might push them over. Yeah, it might. It's not coming up in the polls right now, uh, but it might. And it's certainly true. I mean, everything Mark said about uh, the narrative not coming from Trump uh, in uh, uh, so long as the trial has been going on, uh, the absurdity of the uh, Trump defense, uh, all of that is absolutely true. Um, how much this matters electorally, uh, we don't know yet. Well, Trump, uh, let, me we just, get, let me just yeah, inject yeah. here. Trump had assumed, and Republicans had assumed, that since the Republicans had the 53 votes and it took 67 to convict, that he would be acquitted and that an acquittal would enable him to campaign on the boast that he was acquitted of the charges uh, but hasn't that been tarnished now if the re- Republicans vote tomorrow to refuse to hear witnesses? Yeah, tarnished actually is a euphemism. Yes, it, is, it has been really kind of blown out of the water because even uh, given the Republican base sticking to Trump like a barnacle, um, <laughs> nonetheless, uh, the polling shows that most Americans uh, definitely supported the calling of witnesses and would view uh, the trial not as being a legitimate acquittal um, if, you know, they don't observe even, you know, the very basics of any other trial uh, that, that goes on in the United States. So, yes, uh, you know, it, it, he's not about to emerge with a clean bill of health. He's going to have his bill of health, if anything, uh, look sicker than it was before. Uh, on the question of calling witnesses, this uh, just about an hour ago, there was an, during the question period, there was a question from Democratic fence sitter Joe Manchin uh, of West Virginia. His question uh, for the uh, uh, for both sides was: Has there ever been a trial without witnesses? And the Trump counsel replied. Uh, when Mueller conducted his investigation, he subpoenaed hundreds of witnesses and thousands of documents, and he was given thousands of pages of documents. And after that, Mueller ruled there was no collusion. And that's all you need to know about the Democrats and their belief that subpoenas and witnesses are going to prove that uh, Trump is a criminal. I wonder if you find that a convincing answer. Well, A, it's not a convincing answer because that's not an accurate characterization of what Mueller concluded. And B, in the 15 uh, impeachment trials that the Senate has conducted since it first convened in 1789, uh, two of them for presidents uh, before this one, uh, all of them call witnesses. And, And indeed, I think the average number of witnesses called in those 15 trials 
was close to 40, 40. <laughs> uh, and and uh, certainly uh, witnesses were called uh, more than 40 in the Andrew Johnson presidential impeachment, and several were called in, in Bill Clinton. So the, uh, the short and accurate answer to Senator Manchin's question is no. no. There has never been... Uh, an impeachment trial before this one where no, uh, no witnesses were called. And let us also recall that before the trial began, other friends of ours worried that Trump might be able to play this, so he came out of impeachment stronger the way Bill Clinton did. That certainly has not happened. Uh, no, no. Well, I mean, most most Americans, uh, you know, I mean, Clinton had more support generally. Yes. Uh, than uh, than Trump had going into the trial and 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 more support coming out. Um, uh, I mean, most Americans, I think, were not really uh, convinced that uh, what uh, Clinton and Monica Lewinsky, what Clinton did with Monica Lewinsky amounted to what the founders thought of as high crimes and misdemeanors. Uh, it was it was abusive, but it wasn't a political offense. Whereas what uh, what Trump did uh, actually sort of undermines the credibility of our government, which is very much a political yeah. Uh, offense. Yeah, and and the other um, the other possible fallout of the impe- current state of the Senate impeachment trial for the November election has to do with the um, the, the contested seats currently held by Republicans in Maine. Colorado, uh, what North Dakota, uh, uh, North Carolina, North, Car- North Carolina, North Carolina. Um, you know, it's it's thought that the incumbents in those places, uh, you know, are are being pressured uh, to vote to uh, at least to hear witnesses, and if they don't, this will hurt them. Uh, well, it looks like at least one or at least. Well, not enough of them are going to vote for witnesses, it appears right now, in order to get witnesses. And that's certainly uh, going to keep them alive for Trump, but maybe it's going to hurt them in November. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think it will. I think it will hurt them in November. Uh, th- then you wonder about someone like Lamar Alexander, who yeah. is uh, going to retire after a long career Governor of Tennessee, then Senator from Tennessee, and as one friend was 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 mentioning to me, you know, this is a little like uh, you know Bob Corker retiring, but refusing to break with Trump on uh, on any issues, though though he had personally had a bunch of differences on on policy. Uh, and the friend said, look, he uh, wanted still to play golf when he went home with all of his Republican <laughs> business buddies. Oh, and I I think you know that even for a retiring senator. Like Lamar Alexander, uh, you you kind of have to assume that that that's a factor. Uh, at at this point, you face uh, you know ostracism from your Republican circle at least. If you uh, you know unless your Republican circle is sort of a handful of uh, Republican columnists and pundits who were never Trumpers, which is a small group indeed, uh, you 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 face a certain level of ostracism, and uh, that may. Uh, eclipse, uh, you know, any sense of uh, decency, justice, fairness, uh, or allegiance to the Constitution. 
The power of golf over the Republicans. <laughs> the golf has always been very strong among Republicans. <laughs> if you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Harold Meyerson of the American Prospect. We are talking about, guess what, the the Senate trial of uh, the president on charges of obstruction of justice, <clears throat> of, of abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. Let's get the charges right here. Uh, I'd like to shift uh, our focus here for a minute to to the Democratic primaries where Bernie's poll numbers have been surging. He's right now more or less even with Biden nationally with about 25 percent each. Uh, Bernie is the one who's sort of been on the move. There's a new California poll that came out that shows him in far ahead in first place in among California primary voters. Bernie Sanders, 26%. Elizabeth Warren, 20 Joe Biden, 15 Nobody else in the in the two figures. Uh, Mayor Pete, 7 Bloomberg, 6 uh, That's pretty striking. And uh, Bernie's also ahead in New Hampshire. He's gone up seven points in two weeks. He's at about 30% there. He's in the lead in Iowa. Uh, how do you explain this? Bernie is not doing anything different, I don't think. Bernie hasn't done anything different for about 20 years, as far as I can tell. Maybe 40. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, uh, I, I think part of this is a, a consolidation of the left uh, half of the party, which has come to a certain degree at the expense of Elizabeth Warren. Uh, part of it is... Uh, I don't know. I think the appeal of Bernie's authenticity, which even his bitterest enemies uh, grant that he's got in uh, in abundance, uh, and 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 there's a, there's a bit of an asymmetric development here too, because if if uh, Bernie is 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 beginning to consolidate the left, no one has consolidated the center half of the party. Yeah. Uh, that's Biden, that's Buttigieg, that's Klobuchar, and not in the first four states, but thereafter, that's, uh, that's Bloomberg. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in, in the broadest sense, I mean, just looking at this purely in horse race terms, yeah. um, you know, and, uh, unless the, consent, the, cent, the centrists consolidate uh, their support, it's, it's going to be hard for any one of them, uh, you know, to, to, to really emerge. I mean, the assumption always has been that this will be Biden, uh, but um, other than states where a heavy proportion of, uh, a really heavy proportion of voters is uh, non-young African-Americans, uh, it, it's hard for me to see where Biden really soars. And, and, and so... Um, you know, it remains to be seen uh, how this plays out. Uh, I, I don't really feel particularly confident making any any projections, but I mean, if we just step back uh, a couple of steps for a moment and, and note that a, an avowed, self-avowed democratic socialist is, uh, you know, at least at this juncture, at least the co-front runner with Joe Biden for the Democratic nomination, that that's pretty damn breathtaking. Yeah. Yeah, well, let us pause, let us pause and, and catch our breath after that. Yeah, uh, right, it, it's right, true. Anyway, yeah. Um, uh, um, I, I, I want to point out, I think this question of who, how can the center consolidate is a very important one. 
And, you know, that was sort of the basis of that much maligned New York Times editorial. They sort of ran down the possibilities. They consider Biden a fragile candidate who is likely or or possibly going to fail uh, confronted by Trump. They didn't have confidence that he could make it to the end. Uh, they sort of ran down who are the other possibilities, and they concluded Klobuchar is the only po- real viable candidate for the Senate, for uh, a month for the for the center. Center, yeah. Uh, and you know the logic there is 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 pretty clear. I have to say, yeah, that would be a reason for Amy to emerge. For some reason, she only has four or five percent. But uh, th- well, that, that, that's the logical position. But you know, to, to get back to my horse race, yeah, yeah. You know, the best horse. If if it can't break free of the the, the horses that are in front of it, uh, can't get around them. Uh, it ain't it ain't gonna win. And uh, you know the, the horse she's got to get around, or the horses she's got to re- get around are, are are the three Bs. It's yeah. Biden and Bloomberg and Buttigieg. And uh, she may, in theory, be the strongest centrist, but they're you know that they stand athwart. Her um, her capacity to emerge uh, until um, you know, unless and until they give up, and you know she's more likely to run out of money uh, before any of them. Yeah. So it's uh, uh, New York Times notwithstanding, that is one tough road to hoe. In the couple minutes we have left here, I want to go back to the impeachment trial just for one more question. Do we have to worry that Democratic senators Doug Jones? Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin might vote to acquit Trump on at least one charge. Uh, I don't think Cinema because uh, Arizona is a state that's beginning to trend uh, Democratic, and I don't think uh, I, I don't think she would uh, fare well, uh, and certainly I don't think she would win the next Democratic primary if she did that. Uh, with Manchin and Jones, uh, I don't know. Uh, I mean, uh, both of them now represent states that are heavily, heavily pro-Trump, among the most pro-Trump in the country. Uh, so I, I, I think that's a, a, a plausible concern. Um, I actually think politically it wouldn't be the end of the world. Uh, you know, I mean, does, does Trump then get bragging rights that he had at least on one or the other measures bipartisan support yeah but i think his bragging rights are so undercut by uh, what we said in our earlier discussion about what mark cooper wrote about you know that this is a sham of a trial and most americans view it that way that i don't think uh, you know bragging that particular point of bragging rights really amounts to anything harold meyerson read him at prospect.org harold thanks so much always great to have you on the show great to be here john I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. Next up, the coronavirus and the Communist Party in China. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. 
Later in this hour, the Super Bowl, toxic masculinity, and Donald Trump. But first, the government handling of the coronavirus in China has led to a wave of protests there against the rule of the Communist Party. For that, we turn to our man on China, Jeffrey Wasserstrom. He's Chancellor's Professor of History at UC Irvine, where he's a colleague and a friend of mine. He's the author of five previous books, including China in the 21st Century, What Everyone Needs to Know. He's written for the New York Times, the Times Literary Supplement, The Atlantic, and The Nation. Last time he was here, we talked about his new book, Vigil, Hong Kong on the Brink. Jeff Wasserstrom, welcome back. Good to be back on. Well, just to sum up where we stand at this moment, mainland China now has more cases of the coronavirus than it has than it had of SARS, the respiratory infection that spread across China starting in 2002 that killed 774 people in 17 countries. The number of confirmed coronavirus cases is uh, over 6,000 worldwide, and the World Health Organization has declared a health emergency that all countries are supposed to uh, cooperate in, in, in fighting. Right now, almost all of the infections have been identified as taking place in mainland China. Uh, uh, 130, something like 130 people have now died from the new virus, according to official Chinese statistics. But a lot of people believe the real number is much higher. British Airways has canceled all flights to and from China, not just to uh, Wuhan, the origin of the outbreak. And a New York Times headline a couple of days ago read, As virus spreads, anger floods Chinese social media. Uh, let's start with what we know about the reason people in China are protesting the government handling of the coronavirus. Well, first of all, with the word protesting, I, I think it's important, you know, because I've been talking, for example, last time about the protests in Hong Kong that were large numbers of people on the street, really giant protests. This isn't, that's not what's happening in China now. There are people who are um, talking, sometimes critically, um, on the web about it, on social media, there's concern. I think the, 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 the real issue is there's a fundamental problem of lack of trust, of just not being sure that the information that um, people are getting is accurate, that there, you know, there was a cover-up for a time of SARS. Um, there have been a variety of times that um, the Chinese Communist Party has tried to minimize things that are going wrong in other ways. So, I mean, it's, it's not unique to China that people would um, doubt information coming from their government. We're right. seeing uh, plenty of examples of that other places. But um, I think there's a mixed response in um, China. It's an enormously um, diverse population, so there are going to be plenty of people um, inside uh, mainland China who think that the government is doing the right thing and is doing things well, but there are other people who are concerned about what's not being said or what uh, information they're not getting. One thing that was intriguing was on social media, there was a fair amount of discussion about Chernobyl, um, which is yes. back in discussion in part because of the television program and books that have been coming out. Um, there have been some very good books on, on Chernobyl out recently. Um, and so talking about Chernobyl was a way of, in a coded sense, um, bringing up a case in which a Communist Party-run state uh, famously hid a lot of information from, from people being affected by a problem. 
Excellent, uh, excellent point. Um, and and uh, the the one thing that we know clearly that is also disturbing to many uh, Chinese uh, people is that when the coronavirus was first discovered and reported by doctors in Wuhan, the first doctors to report it were were punished by the government for the crime of rumor mongering. Uh, the government. And and that lasted for what a, a couple of weeks. The government tried to call this just uh, irresponsible rumors. Well, we're still trying to we're still getting information about, but clearly there was there was a pattern. There's a pattern where initially um, information the the earlier information is available, the more effective you can work against something like this. I'm not an epidemiologist. I don't know um, any more than what I've been reading about right. the situation, but what everybody does seem to agree about is the earlier you know this, the better. And one thing, you know, I can't resist because Hong Kong is so much on my mind. I think one of the things that's important to remember is that during the SARS crisis, the fact that there was greater press freedom in Hong Kong was important in minimizing the impact of the government cover-up of this across the rest of the People's Republic yes. of China. Yes. So the fact, this is one reason why it's not just that people in Hong Kong should care about the continuation of press freedom in Hong Kong, but in fact, Hong Kong provides an important role to the rest of China as well as to the rest of the world in situations like this, in being a place that's close to and um, keenly aware of what's happening on the mainland, but has a press that is still freer to report on things, even when the central government doesn't want them to be reported on. Excellent point, and I do want to talk about Hong Kong in a minute, but I want to stick with Wuhan for a minute longer uh, in the New York Times today, uh, op-ed columnist Nicholas Kristof said that uh, five million people fled from Wuhan before uh, it was placed on lockdown, fleeing the virus. Wasn't there another reason why Chinese people were leaving Wuhan in mid-January? Well, there are a lot. I mean, this is the 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 problem with the timing. Uh, the virus is this is right around Chinese New Year, which yeah. is the, uh, or Lunar New Year, which is the time that there's an enormous amount of um, simple, simply travel around China and between China and other places. This is the, the biggest holiday season of the year. It's a time when families get back together. It's, um, you know, China has a, is a situation where in nearly every city there are large numbers of migrant workers who go back this might be the one time a year when they go back to their home villages. So it's a time of enormous numbers of people in movement. So, in fact, elsewhere elsewhere in the New York Times, it was reported that the Lunar New Year is now the largest annual human migration in world history. Three billion Chinese people go somewhere for Lunar New Year, as you say, mostly back to their their uh, their homes. So it can't be three billion. There aren't that many. Three billion that. trips. Three billion, oh, three trips, billion trips is okay. what they reported. Three billion okay. trips. Could that be? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it depends how you count you count the trips. But no, it is, there's no question about the 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 scale of movement at that time is is enormous. Just as the you know the size of the migration within China. We often think of migration being between countries, but um, there is just an enormous amount of movement of people between different parts of 
this you know continent sized uh, sized country in in Wuhan. 10 million people, it's as big as London, as big as Los Angeles County. It's the kind of place that people migrate to to get work and then go home, but home is somewhere else. Often, yeah, that's true. I mean, it is, It is um, for somebody who pays attention to China, for, for, for if you work on Chinese history, Wuhan, it's not an obscure place. It's, it's not, um, it, it may be a place that a lot of people in the United States aren't, aren't familiar with the name immediately, but it actually was the site of the 1911 revolution. It's been, it's been a very important place in, um, in Chinese history, and it's quite centrally located, which is another thing about this, that it has uh, connections to many different parts of the country. Well, I have another question about the Chinese government response. We think of the Chinese government as this sort of superpower that's able to, you know, build whole cities in a couple of weeks and rail lines like um, the United States can't even imagine. But we we are told that Chinese hospitals have not been able to get an adequate test kits, masks and protective gear and and now UNESCO and uh, Boeing are sending help because the Chinese can't deal with it. Uh has the Chinese government really been somewhat incompetent in responding to the coronavirus? Well, I think there's a mix. I think we need to think of it as a mix of things. There are things that have been done. Um, there's been a fair. I've been struck that there's been a fair amount of a sort of admiring um, tone to a certain amount of the international coverage of what's been going on. And it's definitely true that when the Chinese Communist Party sets is set something high on the agenda, they can mobilize a great deal of resources and put a lot of energy into having things happen. So whether it's the right move or not, the, the size of the quarantine, the number of people placed under quarantine was, was quite dramatic. And there was a kind of, um, I was struck by a fair number of people at marveling at the kind of pragmatism and can-do ability, the fact that new hospitals are going up very quickly, which is something that was also... Um, seen at the time of SARS. Um, but there are limits to that. There are limits to that ability. And you, you pointed to, to, to one set of them with things like supplies. But I would, I would say there's another um, even more fundamental kind of, there's some flaws to the um, can-do abilities or the pragmatism of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, not everything they're doing is pragmatic as opposed to ideologically driven. And I think the one of the biggest limits to the pragmatism of the response uh, to the virus is that Beijing has continued to make it clear that they do not want Taiwan to be able to participate in the World Health Organization. Oh. And here, this is a global uh, this is a global crisis. One place where people travel uh, to and from um, China is is Taiwan, which has operated as um, is a, operates as a country even though um, the People's Republic of China claims that it's part of the People's Republic of China. And in fact, um, for decades, it's been, it's been operating on its own. Um, and Beijing insists on blocking it from these international organizations. Uh, this is true with Interpol. It's true with the, um, uh, the Olympics. Um, but with the case of um, the World Health Organization, it's really a problem that this kind of ideological nationalistic concern um, with keeping uh, Taiwan out of that body, it undermines one part 
of the pragmatic response to this because you want to be able to have an organization like that getting the best information as quickly as possible from every locale that, that is affected by this, and Taiwan's one of the places affected by it. Um, so that's one of the ways in which um, I find it really concerning that the leaders in Beijing who are presented often as very technocratic, pragmatic people who take a kind of engineering approach um, to problems, this is one case where they're taking a very ideologically driven uh, approach to one aspect of that problem in continuing to block Taiwan. And uh, do you, th how, how, uh, how much, well, how, what's the best way to put this question? Do you think the there's a lot of sus suspicion among Chinese people and uh, lots of other people that the government is concealing the extent of the coronavirus epidemic there. Uh, do you think that's likely? How much worse than the government is saying could it be? Do you have any idea? Is, have you read anything about what other people think is the truth? So I think we're, we're, we're in a problem. We're, we're, in a, we're in a terrible situation globally and in this country um, and in China as well with um, the, the rapid spread of rumors and misinformation. Um, so there are all kinds of um, exaggerations going around. We also have the case, though, of um, a government, uh, in the case of, of, of the Chinese Communist Party, that has quite famously tried to cover up things that it doesn't want um, known widely. So it's very hard to know. Ian Johnson has a good piece in the new, that just went up on the New York Times website. Uh, he's always um, one of the one of the most consistently strong uh, journalists reporting from China, and he talks about very much this issue of um, public trust and the, the problem with that, and that crises like this are what, are what um, reveal the, the limits of, of public trust in the government. Well, let's talk about Hong Kong for a minute. Uh, I've read that there are protests <clears throat> in Hong Kong now about the handling of the coronavirus. Uh, how do these relate to the protests that have been going on over the last eight months that you told us about here a couple of weeks ago? Well, there's, there are, are, it's different and there are connections to it. I mean, I think there too, I think there is a, um, a very strong lack of trust with, um, in the government. In this case, uh, local authorities like Carrie Lam, the chief executive there, um, there's a sense that the government has quite consistently um, refused to um, be straight with the population and um, has been driven by uh, ideological agendas. And so there are protesters um, who wanted to bring about changes to the, um, uh, wanted to extend democracy within, um, within Hong Kong. They were concerned about the extradition law. There were all kinds of things that brought people out onto the streets. But now, most recently, um, there were efforts by the government to set up a quarantine, um, to use as a quarantine area um, buildings that were quite near um, um, a residential area. And residents there who might, have, who might or might not have had any part to play in the the other protests were infuriated by this, and there's a lack of trust in the government's statements, even by people related to the protests, by even by people who weren't swept up in the protests. 
also um, there was a building there that was um, that was set on fire by protesters who didn't want it to be used um, as that kind of quarantine zone. So that led to then the government um, switching gears and saying they wouldn't use that, which has led to some protesters pointing out that that even though the the government in Hong Kong keeps saying that protesters should stick to nonviolent methods, it seems that the only time the government responds to a popular demand is if there's some degree of violence. So there's a saying in Hong Kong that um, goes, uh, essentially, you're the ones who taught us <laughs> that only violent uh, protests get attention. You're the ones yeah. who taught us. Yeah. Jeff Wasserstrom, he'll be speaking tonight at UC Irvine at 6 o'clock in Humanities Gateway. He'll be speaking Monday at UCLA at 12.15 at the Law School. Check out his new book, Vigil, Hong Kong on the Brink. Jeff, thanks again for being our man on China. Thanks for having me on. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, Toxic Masculinity, this Sunday on TV. That's in a minute on KPFK, when Trump Watch continues. Same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time for sports talk. This Sunday is the Super Bowl, the biggest sports event in America. Something like 100 million people watch the Super Bowl these days. The Super Bowl and all of football is sort of like Donald Trump. Both of them provide mass entertainment that promotes tribalism and toxic masculinity while keeping violence in vogue. That's what Robert Lipsight says. He's the legendary sports writer for the New York Times who writes now for Tom Dispatch and The Nation. He was also a correspondent for CBS and NBC News. He won an Emmy for his work hosting WNET's nightly public affairs show. And his book, Sports World, an American Dreamland, has been reissued by Rutgers University Press with a new introduction. Last time we talked here, it was about Trump and golf. Bob Lipsight, welcome back. Glad to be here, John. Well, football is an entertainment where the audience, mostly white, watches young black men try to inflict traumatic brain injuries on each other. Is that a fair statement? Well, I think it's pretty harsh, John. <laughs> but yeah, you know, something really struck me the other day about all of this, and it just really clarified things for me. There was a story out of Marshall, Texas. A local doctor had persuaded the school board cancel tackle football for middle graders. A year or two later, local families got together and created their own version of the sport with local teams. Now, Marshall, Texas is one-third Hispanic, one-third white, one-third black. The kids who came to play in the newly constituted teams were 90% black. Mm. And it was generally felt that Hispanics and whites pushed their kids off to baseball and soccer 
to make up for the loss of football. But for black families, they still saw football as the ticket out of Marshall, Texas, as the opportunity to get a college scholarship and maybe even a shot at the NFL. And I was thinking, what's the difference between that and the, quote, all-volunteer army? Yeah. It's very skewed towards minorities, African-Americans, and others. It's the same thing Richard Reeves, wonderful political correspondent, once called the all-volunteer army the NFL with guns. But I mean, this kind of juxtaposition of of football and the all-volunteer army is kind of mercenary forces for people who don't feel they have other options really kind of is a very powerful statement. And I I do think that football, maybe sports in general, but certainly football has has been a a kind of almost, uh, you could say, canary in the the minds for Trumpism. I mean, we, we understand that Trump did not create Trumpism, you know, that uh, other presidents and the Cold War in history did. But certainly it's coalesced now. You uh, wrote for Tom Dispatch and The Nation, quote, football groomed us for Trump. The number one item on your list is that football helped spread what you call America's primary disease, racism. Please explain that connection. Well, I, I think you know, the, the fact that the 70% of the players in the National Football League are African-American would you know, start to, to back that statement. But even beyond that, there are 32 teams. Only four head coaches were men of color. And there were two general managers who were men of color. And, of course, there are no African-American owners. There are two owners who are not white. One is Pakistani-American, one is Korean-American. Bill Roden, a a colleague of mine at the Times, wonderful columnist who wrote a book about this called $40 Million Slaves, he wrote that the power relationship that's been established on the plantation has not changed, even if the circumstances around it have Promoting racism goes along with crushing dissent, especially dissent from people of color, especially people like Colin Kaepernick. You know, kind of unfair, but, you know, you got 70% African-Americans and the support for Colin Kaepernick, an African-American, who three years ago kneeled in protest to racism in America, particularly white cops shooting unarmed young black men. Colin Kaepernick has gotten very little support from his colleagues in the NFL. And I was thinking, you know, we're really quick now, justifiably, to trash the Republican senators who are so concerned about their uh, surviving that uh, they would stand up to Trump. But we're really kind of afraid to apply any of this appropriation to, to to black ball players. I was very struck in your piece that you also talked about another one of the ways that football prepared us for Trump is the way the game, in your words, normalizes brutality. Tell us about Richie Incognito. Oh, we love Richie Incognito. Uh, so <laughs> Richie Incognito 
was an all-star offensive lineman at Nebraska, which is which is famous for uh, you know producing psychopathic uh, football players. Names like and at Nebraska, he picked a lot of fights that could have uh, ended his career in in jail. Uh, but he was such a good player that Nebraska sent him to the Manager Clinic for anger management counseling, which didn't work. And uh, I, I, I think that these kind of escapades only increased his value to the NFL draft. He eventually uh, was drafted into the NFL. He is still in the NFL for 15 years now, and most years, he is voted dirtiest player in the league by his colleagues. And, and, and most famously, about seven or eight years ago, he bullied a fellow 300-pounder. Richie is 6'3", 300 pounds. So I, I never say this to his face. So, uh, but he bullied, he bullied a, uh, another 6'3", 300-pounder named Jonathan Martin, Stanford graduate yet. And an African American, under the guise of you know, I'm going to toughen him up, but he he managed to drive him out of the football and uh, into you know what seems to be a very depressive state. He he is a bad boy, and I I think that, and I I think that there is something romantic to to head coaches about this ability to be beastmasters and to control these bad boys. I mean, it, it kind of helps their own macho image if, uh, you know, you think that you're the only one who can, uh, who can keep this enormous, brutal energy tethered to your demands. You know, I, I think of uh, Trump and his recent, uh, you know, bromance with uh, special warfare warrior, Eddie Gallagher, yeah, whose SEAL team teammates broke all kinds of, of their customary rules to accuse him of uh, war crimes. Uh, he was more or less quitted, and, and Trump kind of gathered him in, restored his rank. He has since retired, invited him to Mar-a-Lago, and maybe in the Mar-a-Lago gift shop, they are selling... Uh, Selling some of uh, Eddie Gallagher's salty frog gear. It's <laughs> oh, <laughs> kind of, kind of you know, Nike for war criminals. I, I, I think this is this is kind of that same sort of line. The idea of uh, of brutality. Yeah, it's it's a brutal game, and I think that the attitudes of, of the some of the families in Marshall, Texas, are uh, that they're you know twelve year olds will never have a shot at becoming real men unless they learn to take a hit. You don't, you don't get the brain damage in the NFL. The brain damage begins back in peewee football with those constant little assaults to your skull. But they think it's worth the risk to become a man. And, of course, uh, if it's your only ticket, out of Marshall, Texas, or any other place where you may feel trapped, often by the color of your skin, maybe it's maybe it's a good deal. But in any case, it's kind of a, a terrible way of looking at America. 
You say that uh, another connection between football and Trump is control of the media. And you say covering football can be a walk in the park or a slog through hell. Please explain the hell. What what makes this hellish? I, I think that it's not really too often discussed because it is embarrassing. But sports writers tend to be intimidated by head coaches who are basically the ones who run the media conferences after games and control access to the locker room, to individual players. Uh, these guys are invariably bigger <laughs> than sports writers, and uh, they certainly have a lot of you know, much bigger guys you know, hanging around. I think there's a kind of the fear and intimidation of dealing with these guys who will, you know, not necessarily punch you in the face, but you know, will walk out of a press conference. And second of all, there's, I guess, some aspect of the Stockholm syndrome in that you begin to think of yourself, if you're a beat writer or somebody who constantly goes back to a football team, you're you're part of the team. You know, on, on the one hand, you know you want access, you don't want to be embarrassed, and you want to get along. Uh, on the other hand, you also have to think that if this team does well and goes to the Super Bowl, hey, you're going to the Super Bowl too, and that you know puts you at the top of the broadcast or on page one. However, that you know we're you know, whatever you're doing, and uh, it, it's not something you want to spoil to yourself in your own careerism. And you also say the big lie is a practice that football shares with Donald Trump. We know about Trump's lies, not just the thousands, but in particular the one about Ukraine that got him impeached. What do you consider the big lie in football? Well, the big lie in football is that uh, having your brain scrambled, one, you know, has nothing to do with football, and two, you can just shake it off. You know, in, in terms of big lies, although probably you know, not, not as far-reaching in its consequences as you know, climate denial or big tobacco telling us uh, that you know, nicotine is good for us, uh, is how many years the National Football League denied the fact that the brain damage caused by football was actually being caused by football to the extent of um, you know brushing aside any kind of you know, criticism or revelatory reporting and setting up and when they did you know set up their own medical teams to look into it. They were invariably headed by, uh, you know, uh, obstetricians and dermatologists. You know, hardly, hardly the neurologists that you needed to see what was going on. So I, I think that that was a big lie in the sense that not only did it damage and kill another generation of professional football players, but certainly it began the murderous drumbeat on the heads of kids, peewee yeah. football players, Pop Warner football players. And, you know, it's not even, we didn't know about it. I mean, my son 
my son is uh, still angry at me that I wouldn't let him play high school football. Oh. And he's he's fifty one, and <laughs> you know uh, he's fifty one and a well known novelist. And I keep saying, hey, yeah, you wouldn't have written any of those books if I let you play. But you know, I how did I know? But you know, we all kind of knew. One, we knew that you know bones were in uh, in bad repair. I had never interviewed a former football player who was able to step up from a soft chair easily. But it also stood to reason that all those helmet-to-helmet hits could not be good for your head. So, I mean, we were all in denial. The football players themselves were certainly in denial because they wanted to play this game, which had given them so much, you know, pleasure and status the prestige of being a high school or college football player is enormous. And then, of course, the prestige and riches of a poor kid making it to the pros. And certainly fans were willing you know, to be in denial for the pleasure that the game gave them. Well, to conclude here by returning to the Super Bowl, sports writers are told to stick to sports this year's Super Bowl is on Fox, and I see that the pregame show includes a Sean Hannity interview with Trump. Dur- and this will, of course, happen during the impeachment trial in the Senate. I see that during the game, the Trump campaign will run a 60-second ad that costs $10 million. Also, Michael Bloomberg has purchased a 60-second ad. Probably that will be critical of Trump. And then there's also going to be a 30-second ad about police brutality against African-Americans. It's told through the eyes of a former NFL player whose cousin was shot and killed by a cop after his car broke down at the side of the road. That ad is being purchased by the NFL itself through something it calls the Inspire Change Initiative, which focuses on social justice issues. Of course, that ad makes you wonder why Colin Kaepernick was kicked out of the NFL for kneeling during the national anthem in order to bring awareness to that very issue. Uh, And one last thing, the San Francisco 49ers will be playing. That's Colin Kaepernick's former team. The last time they played in the Super Bowl, he was on the team. And Vice President Pence recently called them Nancy Pelosi's 49ers. My question, <laughs> my question for you is: If Kansas City beats San Francisco on Sunday, will that be good for Trump? Wow, <laughs> I, I, I think we, I think we can't start thinking that way because <laughs> okay. so then we'll then we'll feel too bad, right? If the Forty Niners win, I, I, I don't think that we one can really saddle teams, you know, with those that kind of Faustian bargain of you know if you win. It'll be politically good. And two, I think it's so shrewd of the NFL to get on the better side of things because they are losing audience. Football is eroding among younger viewers and players. And I think that any kind of nod to anything progressive might bring back some of those fans or bring in some new young fans. So maybe, just maybe, that tells us the tide is shifting a little bit, and it's a good thing. And yes, we will root for the Chiefs. (laughs) Robert Lipsight wrote about Trump and football for Tom Dispatch and The Nation. 
Bob, thank you. You are the best. Thank you, John. One more thing. After our next week, next week, after our coverage of the Iowa caucuses on Monday with Laura Flanders, KPFK will begin its on-air winter fund drive to raise funds to continue operations through the end of 2020. If you believe in true community radio and true independent news, please support this station and this program by making your contribution to KPFK right now so that we can keep our winter fund drive short. The amount you give is up to you because every dollar makes a difference. The only donation too small is the one not made at all. You can help us keep our next fund drive short by contributing now on the web at kpfk.org or by calling 818-985-5735. 818-985-5735. Thank you for supporting KPFK and Trump Watch. That's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guests. Harold Meyerson talked about the politics of impeachment. Jeff Wasserstrom commented on protests in China over the government's handling of the coronavirus outbreak. Thanks to our engineer, Teddy Robinson, our producer, Renee Reynolds. Thanks, as always, to Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Stay tuned at 4 for Rising Up with Sonali. Trump Watch returns next week at this same time on this same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 